Well, it is wonderful to be with all of you here this morning. Pastor Chris sends his greetings, and I am excited to bring the Word of God to our church family today. If you would, please turn to the scripture that Allison read. We're going to jump right in this morning. Mark chapter 4, looking at those verses 35 through 41, a very familiar story, familiar text. As we continue our series, the kingdom come, thy kingdom come, his reign, Jesus reign in our lives. Now the last time we looked into this particular scripture was March 15th, 2020, right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. A storm had come, we were in it, and so we preached this story because we all needed to remember that when you're in it, whatever it is, Jesus is in it with you. And not only is Jesus standing in the storm, he stands over the storm and he doesn't bow to the chaos around us, chaos bows to him. I'm not going to go through a fluffy introduction this morning, I'm just going to preach if that's all right with you. He stands over the chaos of our lives, he, he stands over creation, creation bows to him, every knee will one day bow to him. As Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 puts it according to the message, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this very moment. This very moment he is holding it together, creation together, you together, me together. And this story in Mark chapter 4, it makes a shocking and unflinching truth claim that Jesus reigns over all of creation. And when you think about that reality, this is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith with incredible implications. And doctrine, let me remind all of us this morning, isn't meant to just inform our minds. It's meant to transform our practices. Uh, the fancy seminary way of saying this is that our orthodoxy, that is what we believe, is meant to shape our orthopraxy, how we live. But just because we hear something preached doesn't mean that we all leave this place and practice it. I wish it were true. I pray it was true, but we all know that it doesn't, it isn't. How different would it be if our kids practiced first-time obedience the first time every time? Our homes, our relationships would be very transformed. Now, since we last preached this text, March of 2020, has our society's level of fear and anxiety been minimized or multiplied over those last three years? And does it seem like the level of fear and anxiety in Christians has minimized or multiplied over those same years? Is there any difference between those who are in Christ? Is there any difference between us and the level of fear and anxiety that we experience and those in the world? Or do we just stack up and follow those same patterns? Psychologists describe hope and anxiety as future-oriented traits. We say, I feel anxious or I feel, or I feel hopeful to explain our mental state when we're looking ahead, whether we're looking ahead two seconds or 20 minutes or 20 years. So what has happened? Well, anxiety has shot sky high and hope has sank to new lows. 
Now, for the Christian, our faith is hope. It is eternal hope, which makes us more immune to the anxieties that the world produces. But if our faith isn't what we reach for when fear and anxiety shows up, and it shows up often, then we end up no different than anyone else. We end up, just like the disciples in the story, frantic, in chaos. How much time do you spend concerned by the maybes and the what-ifs of your future? The maybes and what-ifs. How much residence do they take up in your mind? Just think about this last week. How much space, how much time, how much energy went to things that you don't know about. You're not sure what's going to happen, but that's where your mind went. Anxieties of your future. What-ifs of your future. Maybes of your future. It's like when Dorothy, the scarecrow, and the tin man are walking along the yellow brick road into the forest. They think they're on the right path. They think on the, they're on the path to safety, the road to happiness, the road back home. But the path led them into a dark and creepy forest, and hope faded, and anxiety elevated. What if we run into danger? Maybe there's something in here that's going to get us. What if the wicked witch is right around the next corner? We've never been down this part of the road before. We, we don't know what's going to happen. And so all they could think about was lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Lions and tigers and bears. And turn to your neighbor and say, oh my. And let me just tell you something that's a, 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 a truism. I promise you, we've all got lions in our heads. You've got some tigers in your heads this morning. You've got some bears. And sometimes when those lions and tigers and bears, they creep in, you just look at it and just say, oh my. When we look at the life of Jesus over and over again, he showed us how to respond to our anxiety-ridden circumstances. Jesus doesn't ride our roller coaster of schizophrenia that swings between hope and anxiety whenever our triggers get triggered. He reacts with steadiness and resolve. That's what we need. And through his spirit, we need his steadiness and resolve built on an unflinching faith. So let's see how the Lord responds when the wind and the waves pick up. What does he do? Because when we trust in the one who's ultimately in control, anxiety fades and hope fills. So let's look back at verses 35 through 38. It says, on that day, we'll talk about that day in a moment, not just any day, but that day. When evening had come, he said to them, he really commanded them, let us go across to the other side. We're leaving. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great, you might want to circle that word, great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Jesus remains calm and at peace. That's what we see first in the midst of this anxiety-ridden circumstance. He remains calm and at peace. We're going to spend the majority of time on that first point because I believe it's ultimately what we need so desperately. 
Now on that day, it means it wasn't just any day. It wasn't a normal day. Mark, who was the Apostle Peter's scribe, lets us know that all of this goes down on the same day as what we just read about in chapter 3. And if you were here for chapter 3 earlier in the series, I hope you were, you'll know that it was an emotionally and physically exhausting day for Jesus. It started with the Pharisees, if you remember the story. The Jewish religious leaders who had held the greatest social power and influence within the society. They were saying that Jesus, probably the strongest words that they used against him, was controlled by the prince of the devils by Beelzebul. People are calling here literally the son of God, the prince of the devils, and the lord of the flies. They were saying that the healing work of God was actually the deceptive power of Satan. And so as this argument ensued, I promise you that confrontation was not a light and fluffy debate that ended with some hugs and chuckles and, you know, it's all good. This was a fierce battle between light and darkness, life and death, truth and lies from the pit of hell. And then... After clearly being rejected by the religious leaders of his people, his mother and his brother step in and try to save the Savior from himself. So they think he's lost his mind. So they try to remove him from the situation. And he says something very profound. He says, my real family are those who pursue the will of God. And right now, my blood family, they aren't. So who are my mother and my brothers? How do you think that went over with his family? Terrible conflict with the authorities. Terrible conflict with your family. And then he spends the rest of the daylight hours in the Middle East, under the hot sun, in a boat, on a lake. It's going to be warm, without a microphone, preaching to crowds. Until they finally scatter at sundown. Exhaustion probably doesn't touch what he was actually physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally experiencing. So when the day is done, Jesus says it's time to go across the lake, away from home. And just an interesting little insight there that we'll come back to later. Just think about that because that's often how it is in life. Remember, this is probably Peter, one of the fishermen's boats. So they're, they're driving the boat, but Jesus is in charge of the destination. And sometimes that's how life feels. You're kind of driving the boat, but you're not always aware of where the destination is going to be. Because ultimately, if you relinquish control of it to Jesus, then he will set the destination. And sometimes that destination takes you through things that you don't want to go through. Which is exactly what happens here. So he finishes teaching, shoves off into deeper water, and it says that he left just as he was He didn't bring any luggage. He didn't go back for a change of clothes. He didn't bring his toiletries. He's just teaching and preaching in the boat. They stay in the boat and off they go. Now the Sea of Galilee sits in what's called the Jordan Rift and is surrounded by steep hills on every side. And maybe you've heard of this many times before. I'm no weatherman, but I've heard this as well. And that is that cooler air from the hills rushes down the slopes and meets the warm air of the water, which creates intense and sudden windstorms on occasion. I took this picture a couple years ago just of the surrounding hills on the Sea of Galilee itself, if we could show that now. And it really truly is fairly steep all the way around what I would call a big lake more than a sea. But it, is, uh, it, it really is something to see when you're up standing on top of the height 
of those uh, mountains and hills around uh, the Sea of Galilee. Now, most first century Jewish families weren't signing their kids up for goldfish swim school. It wasn't probably a thing. So even for fishermen, if your boat sank in the middle of that sea in the midst of one of these windstorms, you probably wouldn't make it the few miles back to the shore. It was near certain death. And according to Peter, who was in the boat, and his scribe Mark, who wrote for him, the waves were threatening to sink the boat. So this is a life-threatening situation. Now let me help you visualize this. There was an amazing discovery that was found in 1986 that gives us a picture of what maybe they were experiencing. There were two fishermen dis- uh, that discovered a first century, first century, so it dates back to the actual time of Christ. They discovered a first century fishing boat near the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So very likely, high probability, Jesus was in a boat that looked a lot like this. It's called the Jesus boat. And a drought had lowered the level of the Sea of Galilee and exposed some nails. Archaeologists then worked around the clock for 12 straight days to rescue the boat from the mud. And they soaked it for seven years in a chemical bath so that they could display it for people to see. It is 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and about four and a half feet deep. And if you would have seen it fully constructed, it would have looked like this next picture here. And so you can get an idea of perhaps what he was sleeping in as they journeyed across that lake. So while the wind was screaming and the waves are smashing, Jesus was in the stern of this little boat asleep on a cushion. Now how in the world could he be experiencing a sense of serenity and peace in the middle of a life-threatening situation? Two answers have been offered, one physical and one spiritual. I believe that both are true. First, physically, we've already talked about it. Uh, Jesus had to be spent. Although Jesus was God, he was God in flesh. Fully God, fully man. And so his tank must have been empty. And it might have just been like when you try to wake up a teenage boy. It's like impossible. You could rock their bed. You can shake their body. Sometimes I think my son... I don't know where he is in that unconscious state, but you're just shaking him and he's not moving. It's like, maybe if I go get some pizza and put it under his nose, that'll cause him to stir. But otherwise, he's not waking up. Physical exhaustion. But the other one, I think, is more uh, significant. Spiritually, if you're in a deep state of sleep when you're surrounded by danger, that means you're not all that concerned about the danger. It must be because his security was found somewhere else. Your trust is so fixed that you can find rest when you're conscious and when you're unconscious. This is what Proverbs speaks about in chapter 3, verse 21. Solomon says this to his son. He says, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion or understanding. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Now Jesus' mind was laser focused on biblical wisdom and discretion. And that allowed his mind and his body and his soul to find rest in the midst of terrible circumstances. 
Now think about it. The only few times you find Jesus showing signs of anxiety was when his relationship with God the Father was challenged. When he thought about the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying and thinking about what lied right in front of him, we see anxiety. It's a natural human response. You see him there, and it, 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 it describes in the word of God the way in which he prayed, the intensity of his prayer. So we see it there. And when he hung on the cross, and he recognized that the Father had forsaken him because he sacrificially bore the sin of humanity, so the holy God turned away from that unholiness that was upon the Son. We see it there. But when it came to every human relationship and human circumstance, he seems to be pretty much as cool as a cucumber. Or as the late great Stuart Scott used to say on Sports Center, as cool as the other side of the pillow. If you're under 30, maybe you don't get that one, but it's a classic. This is what we learn. What we learn is our sense of calm is directly related to our trust in the Father. Our sense of calm is directly related to our trust in the Father. My daughter is months away from turning 18. I hate that. She drives on her own now. Um, and just last week, she drove right into our neighbor's car as she backed out of our driveway. That was fantastic. She makes her own meals much of the time. She does her own laundry most of the time. She has a job. She makes money. She knows how to take on significant responsibility. She's become much more independent. But just like the rest of you who have raised children, I remember when she was not so independent, when she was dependent. And of my three children, she was the most anxious as a toddler. And I remember letting her walk in the lake for the first time at her grandparents' cottage uh, without me holding on to her. She might have been maybe about three at the time. And every little rolling wave that came in, when it hit her body, it must have felt like a tsunami. And of course, when those wakes came from the boats and made their way towards the shoreline, to her, it just brought up nothing but fear. And so she'd take a step and then she'd look over her shoulder and see if I was right there. And if I was close enough, if I was uh, within arm's reach, if, if my presence was there, if she sensed my, my physical presence with her, if she understood and could hear my voice, then, then she'd turn back around towards the open water and take another step or two, and then she'd look back, and then she'd take another step or two, making sure all the while that I'm right there with her. And of course, when I let a little distance get between me and her, her face, like all toddlers, would immediately change and be full of fear and worry and anxiety. And her thinking was clear. At three years old, it was clear. I'm not safe if my dad is not with me. But if my dad is with me, I'm good. Independence should never be your goal. Because you will always have needs that cannot be met within yourself or by another mere human being. 
The Christian story is that dependence on the right relationship is your only hope. Only God has what you need. Only God knows the end from the beginning. God doesn't work, thank God, in the what ifs and the maybes. He only works with complete knowledge of what has been, what is, and what will be. Only God sees around every corner. Only God has already secured the end of your story. In C.S. Lewis's brilliant book on temptation called The Screwtape Letters, uh, the senior demon, you've heard this book talked about, I'm sure, many times. His name was Screwtape, and he trains his nephew, a younger demon named Wormwood, on the art of bringing condemnation to a young man. This is what Screwtape writes. He says, there is nothing, there's nothing in your arsenal There's nothing in your tool belt when it comes to temptation and drawing a soul away from God. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He's speaking of God. He, God, wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them them thinking about what will happen to them. Is your mind overwhelmed with the what-ifs and the maybes? Has anxiety become a barricade between you and your heavenly Father? Are you able to take another step forward because you know your Father is right there with you? Turn your eyes back to him. Turn your ears back to him. Turn off the wisdom the world offers and call it what it is. It's just a waste of your time. Turn to the wisdom of God's word. Listen to what he says. The father says to his people in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, uh, the most common command that we find in all of scripture, fear not, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The son says to his own, Matthew 28, 20, to close the gospel, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul tells those who have faith in Christ that uh, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And in that same chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 6, he says, set your mind, do not set your mind, to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You might, be, you might be all worked up inside right now thinking about whatever it is that you're experiencing. But I promise you, Jesus is not anxious about your situation. He is not anxious about your situation. And he offers you his peace, his calm, his hand, his voice, his presence. And he says, trust me. Follow me. So how does he respond to our anxiety-ridden circumstances? He remains calm and at peace. Second, he speaks with authority. Look at verses 38 and 39. We'll go through these points more quickly. He says, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So the disciples are frantic. They wake Jesus up with a sarcastic rhetorical question. They're crying out for help, but they're doing something more here in the text. 
The text kind of describes their tone. It's, it's accusatory. It's, it's harsh. It's like they're really saying, you've healed the sick. You've cast out demons. Can't you save your own disciples? So they say, teacher. And Mark is intentional here with the language. It's the Hebrew word, rabbi. He doesn't bring up the Lord in this gospel, Lord, but teacher. Don't you care that we're going to die? We talk about our lives using the metaphor of a storm all the time. And when the storm hits, what's your response? What's your response perhaps even now? Has it ever been, God, are you asleep? Do you even care? Do you hear me? Are you even consciously aware of what I'm going through? You've helped others. Why not help me? Why not help my relationships? Why, why not help my finances? Why not help my sickness? Why not help me? I want you to know first that that's okay. God can handle your questions and doubts and anxieties and all of your emotion. So take it to him. He can handle that. But I want to ask you in those moments, are you calling out to God with a capital G or to God with a little lowercase g? Your head might say, of course I believe God reigns over all of creation, capital G. Of course I believe he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent, he is with me. Of course I've been taught these things, I believe these doctrines, capital G. But while your head might be theologically robust, your faith can be practically empty just like the disciples in the story. So we come to our lowercase g God with our capital S storm. And we're tempted to think that that capital S storm is greater than our God. Perhaps not in our heads, but through our hands and our hearts. And the anxieties come along with that capital S storm. They can hijack our trust in the Father. And those storms can cause us to suspend our faith and make us frantic. And so the scripture is reminding us today, put your faith to work today. Move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. We are loved and known by the capital G God. And to him, there is no such thing as a capital S storm. He reigns over all of creation, and he reigns over your circumstances too. So we remind ourselves of the power of Christ. And what does Jesus do? Does he rebuke his disciples for not recognizing his true power and the peace that his presence ought to bring? Does he say, why, why are you making this such a big thing? I said, let's go to the other side. I understood that that was the Father's will. So if the Father wills for us to go to the other side, that's the destination. I'm not all that concerned about whether or not we're going to get there because he already told us that's where we're going. But to them in the moment with all the surrounding chaos, does he say, man, where's your faith in these moments? Yes, he does. But then does he exchange them out for a new group of 12? He's much more gracious with us than we deserve or could ever imagine. So he wakes up and he rebukes creation. <laughs> he speaks to the sea. He says, peace, be still. Can you imagine being there for that moment? When thunder rocks your house in the middle of the night, have you ever said, be quiet, I'm trying to sleep. And then it just listens to you. 
The Old Testament describes this God, and it is who Jesus is, the God over all of creation. Jesus speaks peace. And notice the language. I love that Mark put this in there. The great windstorm of verse 37 is transformed into a great calm in verse 39. All power belongs to him. Jesus reigns over every aspect of creation, and we are a part of that creation. You might be thinking, then why command them to go to the other side at all, away from home, away from their comfort? If he's in control and has all authority, then why allow the disciples to go through the storm in the first place? Would they have understood his identity and authority without these lessons? That he was teaching them over and over and over again? Do you get it now? Do you get it now? Do you get it now? Let me ask you the question, do you? Don't we all need those same lessons taught over and over? I'm reminding you, I'm with you, I'm reminding you, I'm present. I'm reminding you of who I am. This is what Jesus is graciously doing for them. And so Jesus has ultimate authority, yet the world rejects him, and often his followers ignore him. And what's so shocking to me as I was thinking about this text in this story this week is that the Father God had to remind people to listen to God the Son. I mean, think about that. When, when Jesus revealed his glory to James, Peter, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember what Peter's doing? Like, Jesus is just literally revealing his divinity and talking to prophets who had been dead for hundreds of years, and Peter can't stop talking himself over top of it. It's like we get so worked up about talking to ourselves about our problems, talking to ourselves about our realities, talking to ourselves about all the things that we're thinking and processing that we don't take the time to listen to Jesus. And so the Father had to say, Mark chapter 9, verse, uh, chapter nine, verse 7, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. So let me be clear here. If you are not bowing to the authority of the words of Christ, then you are bowing to the empty ideologies of the world. His way leads to life. The way of the world leads to death. The great lie of our secular day is that we have ultimate authority over our own destiny and dreams. It's a farce. And one day Jesus will return and expose it all. So are you listening to the world's uh, I'm sorry, you're listening to the words of the one with all authority. Today would be a good day to start. And finally, as we think about Jesus responding to these circumstances with calm and peace and speaking with authority, he challenges us to live in fearless faith. Look at the last couple verses here. In verse 40 and 41, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Still, after all this time, after all you've seen. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus asks a peculiar question in the moment. He says, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's peculiar because it made sense why they were afraid. Yet the disciples interpreted Jesus' sleep as a lack of care. They were wrong. They thought they were about to die. Wrong again. What they were missing all along was an understanding of who was on the boat with them. 
which is why the episode closes with a great question. It's the question found in the narrative of every gospel that we have in Scripture. Who then is this? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And I hope you recognize how this story ends, not with a great calm, but with a great question. There is a reversal. At first, the winds and the sea were agitated. At the end, the sea was calm, but the disciples are agitated. The sea was at peace, but now the hearts of the disciples were disturbed. Who is this man? Until you answer that question, you'll be unsettled. Until you settle in your soul, who is Jesus? Who is he to me? Who is he right now in my life? Who really is he? You will be unsettled. So Jesus asked them. And he asks us too. And he asks you this morning. Do you still have no faith? He's saying to all of us today, you've seen my hand all over your life. Do you still trust me? Do you still not trust me? You've seen my grace all over your life. Do you still doubt me? You've witnessed my love. So what is there to fear? You've seen my mercy. So what is there to fear? You've experienced my forgiveness, my presence, my care, my compassion, my power, my strength, my salvation. So what is there to fear? Look behind you, he says. I was there. Look in front of you. I'm there. Look all around you. I'm there. Look inside of you. My spirit is there when you came into this world. I was there when you leave it. I'll be right there. So fear not. Cast your cares, all your anxieties on me. And he promises to give your soul rest. I'll lift you up. I'll bring you close. I'll fill you with fearless faith. All you need to know today is that I'm with you in the boat. He's with you in the boat. Whatever it is that you are going through, he is with you through faith. Take the chaos and know that it bows to him.